Um, so I think I'll give the floor to uh, to Tim first, who uh, who joins us via Zoom because he isn't feeling very well. Um, <laughs> but he's still smiling, and uh, and that's the only thing that matters. So uh, we're very happy that you could join us like this. There yeah, you go. Okay, yes. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, um, Usha, Dennis, Anthony, and the others for inviting me. And um, apologies for once again <laughs> not making this in person. I plan to do this every single time I'm invited to um, <laughs> something with the network. No, I mean, luckily it's not so serious, but both, I have two young kids, and both of them are, uh, are down out with the cold. And so I don't really want to leave my partner dealing with them for too many nights on her own, which um, I think will um, probably be the end of our relationship. And also, I'm not really feeling too sexy myself, so I'll, I'm trying to minimize this trip as much as I can. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm sitting here now, as you can see, in the guest room slash Lego room <laughs> slash children's cook's room. So, um, and also at one point, one of my kids will come in, uh, I imagine. So, um, let me try and, uh, and open the, yeah. Can you see this? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, the, the question girl, um, to talk for about 15 minutes about metamodernism, the global, the local, the global, and, and I was both, like, I guess it's fair to say, inspired by it and kind of daunted because I, it's something that, in a, in a sense, I suppose I have been consciously avoiding to really think about metamodernism and, and, and the global. Um, and so what I thought I'd do today is not necessarily to give you a paper or sort of a finished product, but just to, to go through together, I guess, some of the, the problems and the possibilities for thinking metamodernism in a global, local, and or global context. And I thought I'd do that by way of a couple of, uh, of artworks that I've spoken about often, and indeed two of which, uh, I thought this would also be a nice gesture, I spoke about at that event in 2015, was it 15? Yes. In Nijmegen, um, where, uh, where we first started thinking about these things together, which was uh, such a wonderful event. And so I thought it might be nice to return to some of those examples or case studies to begin to see where we can where we can start with from those because they are some for me some of the key words within or exemplifying or expressing or communicating to us this metamodern structure of feeling. I've also in the title here put this um, this very problematic notion of class consciousness. I'm not going to necessarily talk about class consciousness in detail, but I do really think that if we begin to think about the global, we should at that very same time also begin to think about issues of class. And I realize that in our current climate, issues of class tend to be, I don't know if they're overlooked or disavowed or repressed in favor of other issues, but I do think that class is very important when we think about the metamodern if only because most of the stuff that I and all of you, as far as I'm aware of your work, um, 
consider is, um, <laughs> I don't know how to say this nicely, is bourgeois, right? <laughs> uh, really confers the particular notions of taste and aesthetic in contemporary arts, literature, music that can be tied back to, I don't know, at least the Romantic age, right? And so I do think it's important to come to just spend some time discussing that and alongside that and also the spectrum of whiteness. Right? Because I think that's the second thing that's quite important. I'm guessing that most of the, the stuff we're discussing um, seems to be made by white people. And in many cases, I wonder if it's also made for white people. Whereas, I would hope that the metamodernist uh, structure of freedom, actually, I'm pretty sure, is not an exclusively white phenomenon. And so I think it's, it's kind of insane that uh, we haven't looked at that in more detail. So, I, want, I just wanted to end, perhaps, or go there. So start with some, some thoughts about um, the, the global, but eventually, gradually move there. Let me try and see if I can do this better. Sorry, one second. Uh, all right. Uh, you, do you have this now, the, the video? Yeah, okay. okay. This is a work I've, I've talked about, I don't know, I think almost every talk I ever gave about metamodernism, I mentioned this work. There's two reasons for it. The first is that I think it's an exceptional piece of art. I think it's an exceptional work. Uh, this is uh, Which Side Are You On by the Lebanese-American artist Annabel Daou. But the second reason is that I think it encapsulates, expresses really some of the key elements of the metamodern structure of feeling. Um, as I um, and uh, Ellie is there and uh, Robin, I think, might come in a second as we, in any case, uh, conceived it. And these are these two elements. So this is a, an old television from the 1950s, 60s, a tube TV uh, with a static, static screen on it. And I know that for some of you this is repetitive, so I do apologize. I have a tendency to repeat myself even if I'm not aware of it, but I am aware of it now, but I thought it might be good to start with a short description. Uh, a static screen, and there it becomes already interesting, of what almost all of the visitors, judging from conversations had with visitors in Berlin, that all of the visitors and most of the students who I've later taught about this assumed was a confession screen. And I'm pretty sure that for most of us seeing this, we would assume the same, that this is a confession screen. However, it is a, it's a mashiba, which of course is a particular kind of Arabic um, window, how do you say, is a, a sort of a roster, a filter that lets in light and keeps out warmth, right? So it lets in particular amounts of light and at the same time keeping out warmth. It of course also is a border between the public and the private as well and so forth. There's, there's a couple of, of interesting things to think today, but the most importantly, it is a mashiba. So it is not a confession screen. Um, and I'll come to this back, back to this in a second. On this uh, um, TV with the static image of a mashiba behind which we can see the contours of what we might imagine is a face, but we aren't entirely sure. We hear um, a uh, performance played out, which is the artist asking visitors to a gallery, which side are you on? And so she asks, which side are you on? To whomever comes in, and they have to answer instantaneously. And of course, no one really knows how to answer that question. So some people answer it jokingly, right? Star Wars, Sunny Side Up, whatever. Other people answer it seriously, but with a slight hesitation, right? The question, which side are you on, 
appears to be very difficult to answer instantaneously. And of course, the reasons for this are twofold, and those are the reasons that I think bring us closer to what we are thinking about when we're thinking about metamodernism as a structure of feeling. The first is that there is no parameters, there's no context, right? It's entirely open. The question, which side are you on, could pertain to any single context. It could pertain to human rights, it could pertain to Palestine, Israel, and so on and so forth. It could pertain to football. And so if you give an answer, say, uh, this is the answer I would have given Arsenal, right? This is uh, the football club I support. Um, and then the next person says, uh, Palestina, you know, doesn't look good on you, right? <laughs> if you if you first said a football club, because you've shown some kind, I guess, of moral indifference or levity that you had not even intended, right? Which is to say that the answer is given out of context and yet, in the context of the other answer, becomes instantaneously problematic, which I think is a very interesting debate, especially given the recent uh, discussions about stand-up comedy. But so, um, the notion of context is absent. And so it's difficult to answer that question. The second reason that this question seems to be so difficult to answer is that it's a far more fundamental one. And it is this. It's the notion that any one side is better than the other. Right? That's implied. The moment that you say, I choose this side as opposed to that side or that side, it implies that one side is better than the other. And all of us have learned in school, primary school, and in high school, and in university, that you know, everyone is entitled to their point of view, everyone is entitled to their opinion, but it's not necessarily the case that your point of view is more innately or inherently valuable than someone else's. Can you hear me, Usha? Or? Yes, yeah. certainly. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Um, is not inherently more valuable. And so that's quite difficult. How do you choose a side knowing that multiple sides have something to offer? How do you say that I'm definitely choosing to go with, if we want to bring, I think, one of the most, um, most controversial, difficult debates, I'm going with Palestina, and does that is, what does that say instantly about, and so on and so forth. So every side you choose has a problem, and this is of course the Leotardian conundrum that he describes in, uh, in Le Différent, uh, and which is also very similar to Wittgenstein, uh, Wittgenstein's notion of the language games, which is this uh, Leotard's model for the postmodern, which is the way in which we were all raised in school and high school and university, is that there is values of each side. And Leotard said, it is as if we are an admiral on a ship sailing between different islands in an archipelago. And we should never on one of those islands uh, exclusively, but we should instead keep moving between them. Because if we would associate with only one truth, we'd miss out on the others, and so on and so forth. So we keep moving between them. And the thing that Arnold Dalton poses here, and that's really key, is the following. So given that we do not have the parameters, that we don't have the context of choosing a side, and given that we understand, that we understand full well that choosing any side at all is a tricky business, is very hard to do, then what do you do when you perceive, whether this is true or not is, is another question, but when you perceive that the ship is sinking and you have to choose a side, how do you go about that business? And I think that is one of the key questions of this metamodern structure of feeling. The urgency, the sense of having to choose a side of having to make a commitment or having to, to to have a particular empathy for someone and not for someone else 
in spite of better judgment and in spite of knowing your own ignorance? And so I think this is a key question. And I think what is interesting here is precisely, and this brings me, I guess, to the local, is that the screen that we are, we are watching, this confession screen slash mashriba, right? Because the confession screen proposes one particular relationship between the here and the there, right? On the other side of this screen, there is presumably a priest who is in some sense superior to you. Of course, this is not how we would, uh, how we would describe it, but there is an uneven balance because the priest will absolve you from your sins once you confess them, right? So there's a particular kind of power relationship between these two sides of the screen, the confession screen. There's also, of course, a particular sense of privacy involved on both sides of the screen. The mashriba, although it also hierarchizes, although it also differentiates between a here and a there, in this case between the outside, which is public, and the inside, which is private, between perhaps the heat and the cold, or between the very light and the slightly less light, the moderately lighter, and I want to call it the very loud, and so on and so forth, it's a different kind of relationship. And so, I'm not, I'm not going in here to discuss this, this screen with an answer, but I do wonder, I wonder also if we could think about that perhaps together, what are the implications, first, of understanding the screen to be one thing as opposed to another, into our appreciation of this work, and second, does it matter that the artist herself does not at any moment explicate. That is to say that the artist keeps this in the middle, consciously, right? It doesn't say anywhere, this is a mashriba. I know this because I spoke to the artist about it. But it is, of course, left in the middle. So two questions. Um, does it impact our understanding of this very piece and the way in which we might um, consider the, the lack of context, one, and second, uh, the understanding of, uh, of uh, the value of different signs, the archipelago. And second, does it matter that the artist doesn't, doesn't actually give us it? And I guess this is a, if this is a simple question, I think it's also a pertinent question, especially with relation to contemporary art, because we see this across the board. What we see in contemporary art is that the number of the, the artists that I and Robin and Alison have over the, over the last few years, and then also Linda and Greg and everyone else that's starting to come as a mother, seem to use, seem to make use, seem to rely on a, a whole range of references that aren't necessarily explicated. Right? And I don't know as much about literature, but given that I have to speak every <laughs> talk at the David Foster Wallace conference yesterday, and I can only say, and I hope I'm not offending anyone. I have come to the realization that David Foster Wallace is not for me. But in any <laughs> case, um, that's, you know, the, the amount of stylistic references and eclectic, sort of fragmented um, um, and uses of different realms and different pop cultural registers, I think it has a similar question here. Um, to what extent do these works? draw on contexts that are not necessarily the context that the artist might be familiar with or that the viewer might be familiar with. Because here they absorb in these works, which are collages, they always look, which is interesting, whenever I show them on a PowerPoint, they look much bigger than they are. These are very, very tiny pieces, right? These collages are really quite small. They're made from all kinds of different materials, taken from all kinds of contexts, right? That is to say, rigid from Britain, right? Sand and particular types of clay and stone and mosaic, but also wood from elsewhere, 
uh, there's all sort of reused material on there, glass, and so on and so forth, and which also uses a number of methods and relies on a number of validity practices, which are also not exclusively from a single cultural background, you might say. So works like these involve Japanese woodcutting, for instance. They involve the references to messianistic and indigenous cultures. They involve references to uh, sci-fi, right, from a different range of eras and cultures. And so they also seem to draw on a variety of references. And I think more so perhaps than with Amadou Daou, David Bork makes this into, at once, a problem, an obsession, and something that we aren't really allowed to get to. Because what we see here is that these works, these utopian pictures, created from a, from a whole host of failed utopian projects, whether this is the Nietzschean type of Walker, or churches, or New Ageism, or communism in some other pieces, or indeed um, um, the, the pyramids, or uh, there's also some really, really in the, in the early 2000s some references to uh, what I imagined, Pizza Pizza. Right? So there's a whole sort of range of Mayan culture of references there, and yet they all come together in these single pieces, currently, without conflict. Right? This is not the same as what we might have seen in Hamilton, where each of the registers are pitted against one another. They are all moved into each other, and yet, of course, precisely because of that, because of this sort of collective unconscious that we have here with these pieces, we understand that the utopias that are, are made for us here are necessarily failures. It is no surprise that so few of them have doors, right? that so few of them are actually populated with people. They aren't really meant for us anyway. And so I realize this is, I'm, I'm beginning to touch now on some things without being very clear. And so a few questions begin to pop up. Um, given what we imagine the meta-mother structure feeling to be, to evolve around, which is this question of having to choose side, of having to stay, take stand in spite of better judgment, right? Regardless of whether this is a pragmatic utopianism of the architects or the informed naivety of the musicians or the, the uh, constructive position, I think Greg called it, that we see in TV shows, or whether there's this new sincerity or post-irony in literature, right? This, this duality of having to take a stand in spite of better judgment, of how, that, duel, how that, that tension is built up from a range of registers that come from a range of different cultural backgrounds that aren't necessarily explicated. And if they are problematized, they aren't problematized in the ways that we might have expected them. For example, aesthetically. In the case of Dao, we might not even have noticed. I wonder how many of you would have picked up on this uh, tension between the confession screen and the mashiva if you aren't aware either with the culture of the confession screen or the culture of the mashiva. And I wondered how many of us might have picked up on all of the various references before, even though we, we could probably feel them, because we intuit them, we've seen some, we've been somewhere around. And so, how does that matter? And perhaps that, that brings me now to, to this question of the global and the local and the global. Uh, do I have a few more minutes, actually? Sorry. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, you know, I mean, you know me, you know that I do this always. But I'm trying to, thinking out loud, think my way through this question that I'm, 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 I have made some notes and I'm trying to figure out now where I want to go. I think it's important that if we think about 
all of those, right? The global, the local, the, uh, the global, then we have to think about the definitions we take into account. So are we talking about projects? Are we talking about structures of feelings, right? I mean, I apologize, this wonderful article, of course, very famous piece about the local as a structure of feeling. Or are we talking perhaps about aesthetic registers? So I'm not sure what we are talking about, but I do think it's important that we might clarify what we are. I think for the purposes here today, I might understand the global um, mostly as a project, right? The glo globalization and globalism um, has run, it would appear, almost entirely along the lines of capitalism, which might lead us to wonder if it could be seen at all in isolation or even thought in isolation from capitalism. Which is not necessarily to, necessarily to say that globalization is capitalism, but I think the relationship is one that we might find difficult to really untangle. And so I would say that's perhaps a project for our purpose. The local, I would imagine, is a structure of meaning in the Apollodian sense. Uh, also, in that the local that we are talking about now in our post-digital cultures shouldn't only be assumed to be the local, as in the Nijmegen or the region of Nijmegen, right? Or the local food culture around Amsterdam. I think those localities are also the ad hoc communities that we might find on the internet, sort of structured around short-term concerns or affects. And then finally, the global, right? Which, um, as we've, I think we've all read, read in on the global in different uh, times in our undergrad and postgrad studies, the global here would be an infusion of the local with global and vice versa, um, a globalization that is filtered through the local. And so, if I'm working here with the notion of the global as a project and with the local as a structure of feeling, that would be an infusion of a particular kind of project of capital with what we might call almost in the Setoan kind of terms, an embodiment of those, of those local processes, which aren't reducible to the global. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah? <laughs> hey, thanks for all shaking your head. That was, no one said that. Anyway, I'm just assuming that makes sense. And so, a few, a few thoughts. Um, Metamodernism is global, I would imagine. No, you know what? No, actually, first I would say something else. So the reason that I started with, that I've been hesitant to engage the topic of metamodernism and the global, is that I am um, a white man speaking from a, a very distinct European context, right? And I just think that given the problematic history of white men, and, I, and I'm not doing this in the sort of easygoing, Hannah Gatsby, you know, I, it's not an easy remark. I mean this sincerely also as, a, as I think a very important thing. There is a history of white men from European context speaking well beyond what they know about, right? Not only in the past in terms of colonialism um, um, or all kinds of Orientalism, but also I think still today it's just what the, the necessities of neoliberalization at universities where we're constantly asked to, uh, to reach out to media and I guess comment on affairs that we might not know anything about, right? To give another hot take. I do think this is a problem, and I think it's also, it will be disingenuous for me, from my distinct position and from my distinct background, to speak about things that I have no, no idea about, right? So this is part of my hesitation, it's not to speak out of terms, which is not the same as saying that I shouldn't, you know, um, um, for example, begin to study Mandarin uh, versions of metamodernism, right? But it is just, I don't know anything about it, so I haven't been able to say something, but I'm sure that there's others in the room here who will have a much better understanding of distinct uh, cultural uh, movements here.
So metamodernism, I imagine, is global in that it draws on global tendencies, it responds to global and techniques and devices and so on and so forth, responds to global and local developments, and it's global only in as far as it is a flow that passes through it. Locality further is not necessarily a spatial structure of feeling, it can also be a topic of a thing or a fact base, or indeed I would argue demographics such as class or generation. And uh, metamodernism isn't global except for in concrete instances, or at least I'm not sure if anyone at this moment can say it is global except for in concrete case studies. Um, I wanted to say something now, yeah. Um, this, this, I think what is quite interesting here is that metamodernism in this globality or in this globalism is at once, it would seem to me, obsessed with referentiality and obsessed with the kind of referential frameworks that we might or might not be able to appropriate and completely disinterested, completely, it doesn't really seem to care about, right? In the sense that David Thorpe uses an, an enormous amount, and, and that the context for whether it is to be obsessed and whether we shouldn't care at all, that that context is not necessarily given, it's not necessarily clear, it seems to depend really on a case-by-case -case basis. So there is a simultaneous obsession with indexicality and, and sort of an irreverence towards indexicality in the same sense that uh, Bourdieu in his Ultramodernism exhibition spoke, spoke about Creolism, right? This notion um, of a, a culture that is always already global and doesn't care anymore about where it comes from. However, I think we, we have all seen that especially with the advent of identity politics, it seems also incredibly uh, important in some cases what you are using and if you are the right person to use that, right? And I think that's a very, very, very fair point. Again, uh, going back to uh, the historical overdetermination, perhaps, of some, uh, some people. Um, okay, one more remark. I don't know if this makes sense at all so far, right? So, as I said, I, I wanted to share a, a series of thoughts. Um, this is a piece that I, I don't I have not time to talk about now, it's by Oscar Santillon, which does a, a similar thing. And it, well actually let me say one thing about it. What I think is interesting about the Santillon piece, uh, Santillon is an Ecuadorian artist, but someone who was trained in the US and then in, in Europe for the most part. Um, he made this piece, uh, Zephyr, in which the artist takes this this quote by Jung, which may or may not have been true, that he wanted to always see the civilization of the Jaguars, um, as a starting point for a quite meaningful trip in which he uh, builds a, uh, a vacuum cleaner with a specific kind of birthstone built into it, a birthstone that he alleges was the birthstone of Jung, here we see it. Um, he goes to the jungle in Ecuador, gets the help from uh, some kind of uh, shaman, uh, they go to a place where jaguars allegedly live, and then he smells up with the vacuum cleaner the scent of the jaguar, and he puts it in the birthstone. And in that sense, he says, it all comes full circle. And of course, this is ridiculous, right? It's ridiculous because we don't really know who ever said it. We presume he might not have. It's ridiculous because obviously this vacuum cleaner with his birthstone in it does not really fulfill that desire posthumously. And it's ridiculous because it draws on cultural references like the shaman, in this case, that might not necessarily cohere with the Jungian model. And so, it draws us into it, and at the same time, of course, it is entirely sincere, 
in that the artist finds proper meaning in the journey, in the process of going about all of these steps, especially given that it means a return to a homeland that he hasn't seen for a long time. And so it seems to be a negation, followed by a negation, and in this case followed by a third negation. And those negations do seem to, to sort of pivot to me on issues perhaps of the local or the global. It seems that the cultural references begins, begin to sort of re, you know, turn each other. Oh, now we go into this direction. Now we have another pivot, and then we go here, right? So we go from doom, a distinct kind of, you might say, uh, safe on spike like European past. We go to the culture of the uh, of the birthstone, right? Which is a, a different kind of uh, of the register. We go to the vacuum cleaner, which is a wonderful register, I think, but a different one altogether. We go to the shaman. We go to the smell of the jaguar, right? Which is a whole new sort of brand thing. <coughs> if we can do that, yeah, I'll finish. Sorry. Um, so, um, so, and I do, so that's something I, I just wanted to 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 wonder about is the negations that metamodernism seems to have in it and the extent to which those might be followed as pivots. Finally, and I don't have time anymore, these are all white people. Um, none of the problems we see here are exclusively confronting white people. In fact, I would argue that most of them um, um, impact people who aren't white and people who aren't in the center, and especially perhaps people of lower socioeconomic classes, including also white people, but also other um, um, ethnic and cultural groups, they are perhaps hardest hit by it. And so it does seem to me interesting that when we discuss these meta-modern um, developments or phenomena which we assume are part of the cultural dominance of precisely these changes, that our focus lies with bourgeois things. And of course it's our training, right? All of us as academics are trained in particular ways to look at particular texts and not others. And yet I do think this might be something that we really should consider bringing up. Okay. Uh, yeah, I have some words. I didn't do it in the question. Sorry. That went way over time. But that was it for now. Very interesting. Thank you. Can we applaud? Thank you, Tim. You've offered several um, ways into thinking about um, globalism, um, metamodernism, and um, uh, that's something that we've been Close. in class to thinking about as well. So I think it's a very good way to start off uh, our afternoon together. Um, perhaps we can ask anyone who'd like to ask questions to just turn on their camera and um, ask the question because that saves us going back and forth with muting and unmuting. Um, shall I first go to the room here? Any questions here? Or comments? Yes, Dennis. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, for me, you could have gone on for another hour. Uh, <laughs> never mind the time. Oh, it's too nice. Uh, well, it struck me that a lot of metamodernist questions begin with the phrase, does it matter? And I thought the the uh, De Hoon, uh, artwork, does it matter that the screen, or whatever it is, is shown on a, an old television set, or on a television at all? Uh, so does it matter it's shown on another medium, as it were? Could you say a few things about that? 
Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, and maybe I should have also explicated it. The word engage is explicitly um, in a relation or a dialogue with a very famous work um, um, and one of the works that is representative of postmodern art, which is, of course, Nanjun Pai's um, work with the television, which is at the museum in DC, where, you know, you have, I should have, should have taken it, you have like a, you know, it's a hundred different television sets, right? Together they make up America, right? So there's a picture of America. And all of these televisions show you different, different stuff, right? So flickering images from different sources. And there the effect is very much, and they are all TVs, but mostly newer television sets. An, an amazing piece of, really an amazing piece of work. Um, and this um, um, uh, piece, and another piece by Nam Chung Hans Belting uh, seems to have been in love with, right? I'm sure you've seen it, the Buddha and the television that are in this sort of relationship together, right? Um, very famous piece as well. These are the sort of two frameworks that that all places this work against. And so in the first, we have contemporary culture completely sort of paralyzes us, right? Mediation that paralyzes us in its diversity, in its eclecticism, in its sort of um, the commodification and so on and so forth. In the second, it brings us to a particular kind of mediation, and you might say cultural appropriation, right? Between the Buddha and the TV set. And so this work is a ref in a way engages with those. And so I thought that um, this is partly why it's interesting that she uses this old television set, because of course these weren't yet about making choices, right? This television set is precisely about having a single channel, maybe three channels that you have to change on the TV. You don't have the amount of choices of zapping, of changing registers there, as you would have in the televisions today. Um, it also um, brings back the old notion of television as a primarily a radio activated medium, right? This is what we often thought about TV until the sort of late 80s, is that TV is based on, which it is, it's based on radio and not on cinema. Uh, the screens were small, you could only have talking heads, it was all about dialogue, never about visuals. And so it brings us back to a particular kind of mostly radio play kind of uh, discourse. Um, and perhaps it brings us back to a, I don't know if this is a sort of ontological thing, uh, in the Derrida sense, or maybe even the sort of, you know, in the sense, but I think it brings us back to the idea that television used to be, at its inception, a medium that could or was thought to allow us a particular kind of frame or opening onto the world that had hitherto been impossible, right? And that, of course, gets lost, right? Especially in the 80s and the 90s, TV becomes, and also Wallace again is, I think, nails this, right? It becomes the idiot box. Right, it becomes the kind of stuff that breaks families apart, the royal family, right? It becomes sort of stupid by watching it. And so I think, it, it, so to, to go back to the answer, it's a response to those two distinct words by Namjoon Five, which have, uh, so this, I would say the screen pertains to the Buddha, and I would say the old TV pertains to sort of the hyper-modernity of, of the other word. Um, I think it brings back to us the notion of a particular kind of discourse about television as mostly oral, mostly uh, enlightening, and in that sense, that the particular relationship that is initiated by television between the inside and the outside. Right? And remember, right, TV comes into the homes in the process of suburbanization, right? It's the sort of prime suburban medium, in, uh, and in doing that, it's distinguishes the male productive sphere in the city from the female consumer sphere uh, in the suburbs. Um, it becomes a domestic sort of space, right? So it also 
it encapsulates precisely the same issues that the Mashiva does. I don't know, does that, does that give an answer? Well, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Yes. Can I ask a question, Tim? Can you hear me okay? Is this still a delay? Yeah, I can hear well, um, my mind is still in Eindhoven a little bit, so you'll excuse me for asking the can you explain this again question. Uh, they, the prints that you have, the kind of Japanese looking prints, I just wanted to ask you about those. And if you can put those uh, on screen. You mean screen again. the ups Yes, uh, that's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Is right? Yeah. yeah. So just wanted to ask the, when you were talking about those in terms of metamodernism, is, did I get it right? Then the idea is that it's not the kind of bricolage around and the various references that's important to thinking about them as metamodernist art objects, because that's the kind of thing that postmodern art would do. But it's something about the utopian spirit, were you saying? It's a kind of a self-aware utopian spirit within these artworks, which does make it different from postmodern art. There was something about, about something about the in the context in which they was understood, but I didn't quite get that. Maybe you could say a bit more about that again. I think you said it probably better than I, I did. I think that's exactly it, right? So it's the sort of the, the tension between the obvious building here of utopian uh, uh, landscapes or vistas or worlds even, but utopian worlds that are made up entirely by the materials, uh, the, the rubbish or the, the rubble, by the techniques, and of course, by the sort of iconographic references to failed utopias, right? So it's the, the attempt at a new utopia, which is built entirely from old and failed utopias. Also, I guess, sort of ontological project in that, <coughs> in some in some ways. But if we compare this to the use of collage, sort of the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, as you also point out, right there, what would happen is that those sort of regimes, aesthetic regimes, or regimes of cross, uh, would be pitted against one another. Precisely to open something up, right? But not to go into a direction. But here you have that moment of both going forward and being drawn back, which sort of an elastic, right? Um, that we see opening up in Does that clarify things? Yeah, absolutely. That, that makes sense. I also want to ask you briefly about David Foster Wallace, who you said is not for you then, given I'm on page 834 of Infinite Jest <laughs> at the moment. I wanted to, to, to tell me why that is then. Why did you decide to turn that? I mean, I, I really realized, I mean, I was doing this masterclass last week at the uh, Netherlands, with the Netherlands School of Cultural Analysis on Foster Wallace, and I was preparing it, and I really thought, this is not, this is not for me. And I think the thing is, I really admire David Foster Wallace, and I admire the essays, uh, especially, but there's something in the writing, and I don't know how to put it because I'm not a literary scholar, which is sort of simultaneously it feels overwrought to me. Right? And I really dislike some of the, sort of the metaphors and the way in which those metaphors seem to purposefully clash with one another. It just makes me really frustrated and completely takes me out of the reading experience. And at the same time, sometimes I feel there's such a disdain for language. And I'm guessing all of that is on purpose, right? It's not that I don't think he's probably a very good writer. But that annoys me. Plus, I, I really, really have no affinity with mathematics, and uh, I feel that there, there sort of there seems to be so much of the, of the mathematic way of thinking in it. I mean, the third thing I was wondering, and this is probably going to sound very stupid, but I've been completely obsessed with this, is the idea of sports as a structure of feeling. 
I don't know if I spoke with, with Greg Alinda about it last week, but this notion of sports is structured feeling where I do wonder whether the fact that David Fosterwald was this tennis player, right, which is a very distinct way of engaging and understanding the world, right? You play within the square, one against someone else, you're divided by his net. Uh, he writes, of course, famously about the, how as a kid he would take into account mathematically the use of the wind, right? You can calculate mathematically all the kinds of angles you can take. And whether this is a sort of structure feeling and how that differs from other sports, especially team sports, something like baseball, right? For example, the films of Richard Linklater, or uh, indeed, um, uh, uh, soft football. Right? So I don't know. It's also, I guess it's that's very much a personal affinity that I lack. And, I mean, I don't know. It also feels, in current slang, it feels very bro like at times it's all possible to say. And maybe that's part also of my of my lack of interest that it seems that so many of the people writing on Foster Wallace seem to be dudes. And I don't want to you know again, I don't want to do the simple Hannah Gatsby thing and so is definitely not good. But something with me irks, I don't know. Someone else can probably put this much more. Yeah. I know you are you are almost done with it. Are you enjoying it? Um Kind of, but I can't see much kind of self-conscious utopian spirit in his version of tennis. It seems to be about infinite failure rather than anything kind of utopian in the view of tennis. But yeah, I'll personally okay. hundred pages okay. to go. I, I would argue. I was. I, I will do this tomorrow in, the, in my lecture. I, I, for me, tennis is actually is really the key, right? Especially since John No relation Wayne, but also in all his essays on tennis. Those seem to be, I mean, you know, John Wayne is always an automaton, a robot, right? Someone has no, uh, no sort of inner feeling, all that stuff, right? The same he says about Federer and Michael Joyce and Tracy Austin. That they seem to be sort of completely outside of his system, right? He says also that they are, they are neither ironic nor sincere, right? There's something before and beyond them somehow. They don't really fall into any of the cultural categories. Interesting that there's this black hole, right? This, there's like this vanishing point, if we speak in plainly terms, and at the same time, this frame that these tennis players, these athletes, put up. Um, and, and I do think that it, for me, it seems that infinite jazz, especially, is, is this sort of, uh, you might disagree, I, I find that his utopian efforts, like if I compare him to Thor, also Wallace always seems to look for empathy and utopia but fails to find it. Right, except for in like Mario or like the you know the gray uh, green dinosaur or the AA meetings, you know, unsustainable places. Um, whereas David Thor finds it, but the utopia itself is unsustainable. So it's sort of a different. Yeah. Anyways. Uh, uh, yeah. I, I don't. Yeah. Also, Wall is not for me. But um, yeah. I think we should have uh, um, a small break here because we have uh, all these updates coming up from um, uh, updates from uh, some of you. So a break of let's say ten minutes until four. <laughs> <laughs>